Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. might be wondering kind of why there's a philosopher here at all um, since the topic's evolution it seems a little bit odd Um, and I should say that amongst philosophers even I'm something of an odd fish but it might surprise you to know that ANU uh, is actually one of the top ranked departments uh, in philosophy in the world for philosophy of biology Um, and what we do is we apply the analytic toolkit provided by philosophy so Um, logical thinking, critical thinking, reasoning, analysis, to help address conceptual confusion and theoretical issues within the biological sciences. Um, It's a deeply empirically informed endeavour, so I'm not just sitting in my armchair, you know, all by myself like the historical kind of um, uh, platonic philosopher. Um, I'm talking to scientists all the time. Yeah, yeah, but you know what I mean. Uh, On my rock, I don't know. (laughs) Right? My work's kind of continuous with science and it has a similar goal. So I'm interested in understanding the world around me better. And uh, I suppose to follow that home just a little, um, I actually began as a scientist. I was um, working uh, as uh, doing philosophy of doing zoology of um, animal behaviour, but I found that the questions I was interested in were just not the questions that I I could answer during the research I was doing. Right. So, what do I do? So, my big interest is in understanding how behavioural and cognitive traits evolve. And in particular, I'm interested in thinking about the ways in which um, the evolution of cognition and behaviour might differ from the evolution of physical traits. So, are the processes the same or different? Now, I'm not saying that the the processes are all going to be different between those two cases, right? So, heaps of the evolution Um, evolutionary mechanisms for behaviour and morphology are going to be the same. What I'm interested in is, well, where are the differences? Are there any? Okay. And so what I'm going to talk about today is sort of the motivation for my project rather than um, probably my project itself because it's hard to understand my project without understanding the motivation. So uh, the proximate ultimate distinction is a distinction that's um, commonly um, discussed or um, understood amongst evolutionary biologists in particular. This is Ernst Meyer. He's one of the, what people talk about as the fathers of the modern synthesis, so modern approaches to evolution. And he said there are two domains uh, in the biological sciences. One is the domain of proximate causes, and this is where we are interested in how questions. We ask how a particular system works. And to answer those questions, we use uh, developmental biology and physiology, neuroscience, anatomy, this, what, what he calls the proximate sciences. He says, in contrast, ultimate causes, these are questions about kind of how things came out, how things came to be the way they are, so answers to why questions, why is the system as it is, these are explained using evolutionary processes, historical population level ex- explanations. So we have a set of kind of 
two domains for biological science. And he says these two domains are relatively independent. Okay, so to give you a quick example, I'm hoping not to go over my seven minutes, this is the Rufus hummingbird. It migrates from the north to the south in the winter of North America. And so we might ask approximate question. How do hummingbirds migrate? How do they time their migration and how do they navigate? Right? So these are questions about within a given hummingbird, how, what are they doing? Right? How are they knowing where to go in the winter? How do they know when to go? Right? So that's one type of question and I might answer that question by looking at their physiology, developmental biology, neuroscience, anatomy. But I might also ask why do they navigate? Sorry, why do they migrate? And it looks like when I'm answering that question, I'm talking about what adaptive benefit there was for migrating for ancestral uh, hummingbird populations, right? So why did it evolve? And it looks like when I'm answering that question, at least according to Maya, I don't need to really worry too much about the top question. I'm thinking about kind of selection. What were the selective pressures, not how do they do it? Okay. So that's the focus of evolutionary biology. But there's a um, field called Evolutionary Developmental Biology, or EVO-DEVO, and it's a discipline engaged explicitly in investigating the relationships between developmental processes in individuals and evolution. So they look like they're contravening the proximate-ultimate distinction, and a lot of um, proponents of EVO-DEVO explicitly say that that's what they're doing. But how do they do this? I'm just going to give you an example. Here we have... I should say to any biologist in the room, that's obviously a toy phylogenetic tree, especially since there's a phylogeneticist person sitting right there. But here we have um, the quadrupedal monkeys and we have the apes. And one of the things that's interesting between the quadrupedal monkeys and the apes is that quadrupedal monkeys have uh, leg, leg and arm ling, ling, length that is quite similar. Whereas amongst the apes, we see differences in leg and arm length. So in the gorillas, they have much, much longer arms than their legs. Humans have shorter arms than their legs. And so we might ask, well, is it because there were different selection pressures on the apes to on the quadrupedal monkeys? Were there pressures that, that meant that uh, this part of the tree went towards having different arms and legs? And we might say, for example, in the human case, um, yes, because we, there was pressure to be bipedal um, and it's easier to be bipedal with shorter arms and legs. Okay. Now, the evo-devo bit. So here we have uh, different types of structures in the body which are repeated or iterated. And one of the things that's interesting is that they're frequently derived from the same structure in an ancestor. So we've got the vertebrae, they're like iterated structures, teeth, and we also have our limbs. So if we look at our limbs, they actually have the same um, basic structure, one bone up the top, two bones down here. And, one of the, and the reason why that's the case is because uh, the genes that govern those things are actually repeated. So if you have a, have a look here, this is a toy picture of the developmental pathways involved. You've got the genes for the forelimbs and the genes for the high limbs, and these are roughly, they're, they're copies of each other, and that produces a gene product, and this results in the forelimb growth, or not so much. Right, now one of the things that's interesting is that because the genes here are similar, they produce similar products, and one of the things that leads to having similar um, leg, leg, leg and forelimb length, that always makes, that's always hard to say, in, um, in the old world monkeys, so in the quadrupedal monkeys, is 
because these gene products from this particular bit of the gene network affect both hind limb and forelimb and vice versa. So it means that if I have a mutation in the gene for forelimbs um, and it affects, say, upregulates gene product X, makes more of it be produced, that I see changes on both. And so this means that the developmental pathways are integrated and this is why we see similar arm and leg lengths in the quadrupedal monkeys. And it's, it means it's harder for differing arm and leg lengths to evolve. In contrast, in the primates, what we see is a, a division between the two um, developmental pathways. They're what's called, um, they're, they're modular from each other. So uh, mutations in the genes for forelimbs don't affect the mutations at genes for, the, sorry, the production of the hind limb. And so this means that we can get um, longer arms and legs like in the gorilla. Okay, so if we go back to our original question, why do we get the difference? You might think that the answer actually now looks like it is selection and the reduction on this constraint between the two, the leg and arm length um, evolution, that explains what's going on here. And the EvoDevo people say that this means that to answer um, questions about certain types of evolutionary change, we have to look at development and selection. So how does this kind of thing come about? How difficult or easy is it to break such constraints? Do some organisms have... Is it easier for some organisms than others? So back to this, very quickly. My interest is in how this relates to our understanding of cognition and behaviour. So typically people haven't thought about cognition and behaviour from an EvoDevo perspective. So I'm interested in thinking about, well, what would happen if we did that? Other conceptual tools that EvoDevo has already um, able to be applied to behaviour? It turns out they're not. Um, and what role, if any, should proximate mechanisms play in understanding cognition and behaviour. Um, and any, if anyone wants to look at my work, um, I actually think that it should play more of a role than it does. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you very much for having me. I'm going to tell you about four things that I do, but I want to check first, are there any biologists here? I can see one. I'm going to try and assess my chances of getting out alive. I'm going to make an incendiary comment. Um, like a Hillary Clinton supporter at a Trump rally. Um, so. I do four things and three of them are to do with looking at the genomes of, of animals and plants and viruses and bacteria. Um, and the first thing is phylogenetics. So Rachel showed you this phylogenetic tree which was the sort of relationships, the made up relationships among, uh, among some different species. And one thing that's happened in the last say 10 years or so is we've got a lot better at sequencing genomes. So when we used to do phylogenetics from the sort of 1970s to about the 2000s, uh, we would sequence about a thousand letters of your genome. So in your genome, there's about three billion letters, A's, C's, T's, and D's, and we would get about a thousand of those, and we would build, we'd look at how similar they were among different species, and we'd use that to guess the relationships among species. That works really well, and it's because of that that we know these things that no one suspected, like whales are most closely related to hippos. Um, but what's happened in the last 10 years or so is we got a lot better at sequencing genomes, so now instead of a thousand letters of the genome, we do exactly the same things, but with a million or 10 million or 100 million or sometimes even a billion letters of the genome, and we're really struggling. So computationally, that's a struggle, and statistically, it's a struggle because uh, we're using the same methods we've had since the 1970s, which were built for kind of statistical convenience then, and we're giving them data sets that are many orders of magnitude bigger, and we're running into problems 
where, for example, in the last couple of years, there have been about three papers in Science and Nature saying, I've solved the phylogeny of all bird species, about 10,000 bird species, or some part of that phylogeny, and they say, and I'm 100% sure that I'm right. So they draw this phylogeny and they can estimate their statistical confidence. They're 100% sure that they're right, and all of those phylogenies are different. So we know we're doing it wrong, and so what we do in phylogenetics, and our sort of contribution here is to look at the way that genomes really evolve and try and improve the models that we use to infer relationships among species. Um, and, and by doing that, we think we can not only learn some interesting biology about how genomes evolve, but we can really improve the inferences we make from genomic data. And so that kind of leads on to the second thing that I do, which is I study one particular question, which is why do some things evolve faster than others? So if you look at all the genomes, so if you look out the window, you can see a bunch of different plants. And when you look at their genomes, and you, you can measure rates of evolution of those genomes over the last million or 100 million years, um, you'll find that some plants evolve 100 times, the genomes of some plants evolve 100 times faster than other plants. And sometimes, even between quite closely related plants, the rates of evolution differ. So one, one plant evolves really, really fast, and the other one evolves really, really slow. And we don't know why that is, and we're getting a slightly better picture. So, for example, in plants, we found out a couple of years ago that it seems to be very simple that short plants evolve really fast and tall plants evolve really slowly. And that was a big surprise, and we're kind of drowning in these interesting patterns that kind of we struggle to explain. And when we come up with explanations, there's always in the form of new hypotheses. And so, in the case of plants, by looking at these processes that happen over hundreds of millions of years, we're able to guess that actually what, what might be happening in plants is plants that are bigger grow slower at the, at the sort of apical meristems, the growing tips of the plants. Here's my slide. Uh, the growing <laughs> tips of the plants divide more slowly in bigger plants just because they're further away from the ground. It's harder to get water to the top of a plant. And it's in these growing tips of a plant that the genome is copied. And if all species made about the same number of mistakes every time they copied their genome, then the less frequently you copy your genome, the less mistakes you're going to accumulate over time. And we think that's what's happening, right? And so by studying these processes that have basically nothing to do with plant development, we look at rates of evolution in plant genomes over hundreds of millions of years, we end up with strange hypotheses about how plants actually work and how their genomes work. So the third thing that I'm going to tell you about that I do derives directly from that we came up with these hypotheses that we think that within an individual plant, so imagine this was a little plant, it's a piece of a bigger one, now dead. Um, so within an individual plant, we hypothesized that there'd actually be quite a lot of differences between the genomes. If I took the genome of this leaf and this leaf, then there might be quite a lot of differences. And that's not typically what people think. So we spent the last three years trying to figure that out, and we figured it out, and it turns out that to some extent we were right. There's actually a lot of differences between the genome of this leaf and this leaf down here, and this leaf over here. And in fact, the pattern of inheritance of differences in plant genomes matches perfectly the branching structure of the tree, just like a little phylogeny. Um, so that's kind of nerdy and fun, but we can actually do... <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what, the only reason I did it, to be honest. Um, but we can do interesting things. One thing is we can, now, we can now measure these things. So for the first time, we, can, we have to sort of work on new ways of measuring and seeing these mutations. And we can measure these things, and we can now start to ask questions about what it is that causes changes in rates of mutation within an individual plant. And by doing that, as we start to understand that, we may have a proxy of past climates and of past growth conditions that's a little bit like tree rings. So we can use tree rings 
to see how fast plants are growing and how old they are. And our suggestion is that we can use plant genome sequence from across a plant to do exactly the same kinds of things. It's an additional source of information that we can use to infer the history of an individual plant from the genomes of that plant. Um, but it also allows us to get at some of the most fundamental sort of unanswered questions in plant biology. And one of those questions, which I, the one I like the most, is we really have no idea why some plants can live for such a long time. So there's a eucalyptus tree in Western Australia. It's the only member of its species, because it's a rare hybrid, um, and it's been alive for about six and a half thousand years, give or take a thousand years. And we don't know how any plant can live that long, because plants don't have an adaptive immune system. So when we get a virus or something, our, our immune system is adaptive. It can, it can find any new thing you give it, and it can, it can sort of beat that, and it can remember it for next time. Plants don't have anything like that, but they do have viruses, and they do have pathogens, and they do have herbivores, and things that evolve really fast. So it remains a mystery how a plant can live for a thousand years when it's got these things attacking it, which should be evolving so much faster than it. So our, our sort of naive expectation is that after a couple of hundred years, all of the viruses would have out-evolved this individual plant and would just kill it. And we have no idea how plants manage to stay alive for such a long time. And so one hypothesis we're testing is actually that each of these little growing tips on a plant is kind of an experiment in immunity in this particular season. And so here's one experiment in immunity and here's another. And maybe this year, a virus comes along and kills off that experiment. And what we're left with is this one, and that survives. And so the hypothesis here is that, to some extent, plants may be evolving kind of in place within an individual plant. And so we're just starting to test that now. Um, another thing I'll just say quickly is that I think this, 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 this idea challenges the notion of what an individual plant actually is. So we typically think if you look out the window and you see a tree, you think that's an individual plant. But what we're suggesting is actually that to a, to a significant extent, that to understand plant evolution, we need to start thinking of these little growing tips here, these meristems, each one of these as an individual, because that might be the level at which some of the evolution in plants is taking place. Um, and the kind of overarching sort of conclusion from all of this work that we do on, on phylogenetics and rates of evolution, on somatic mutation in plants, is actually that, to a large extent, natural selection is kind of a sideshow in evolution. And, and the real thing that's happening is mutation. So we think that mutation is really the major driving process in evolution. And that natural selection produces a few interesting things that most biologists study, but the real action is in mutation and how many mutations you generate and which parts of the genome get the most mutations. So I'll just finish by mentioning the last thing that, that I study, which is completely different and might be more interesting to you guys, um, which is we study the behavior of scientists. And we study two things. We study gender bias. So you probably know that science is very gender biased. We have a huge bias towards males. I'm part of the problem. Um, it both because I'm male and because I have an implicit bias, you can do tests that I can show you that I have an implicit bias to associate males with science. Um, and we can measure gender bias across science. So I measure it in the departments that I work in. We know how many male professors we've got. We know how the progressions work. And it's all gender biased. Male, uh, scientific conferences are gender biased. And so we work on measuring that and we work on putting things in place to address that. The other thing is sort of funner and more troubling maybe more troubling, I don't know, uh, it's called p-hacking. So it's kind of scientific misbehavior. So we're all drowning in data, right? And, and scientists were going to collect data. And in the 1930s, a guy called Ronald Fisher, who sort of invented statistics, said, let's have this value called a p-value. And if that value is about 1 in 20, 
will think that your science is interesting. And what this value is, is what's the chance that you saw something at least that interesting just by fluke? Um, and so if we think there's only a 1 in 20 chance that your result was a fluke, uh, then, then you can publish your work, and if it's 1 in 19, you pretty much can't publish your work. So that's what's happened to science. And what we've been able to show is if you collect all the p-values ever published and you look at a picture of those p-values, you see the results of p-hacking in that. You see what scientists are doing is taking p-values that were just over 1 in 20, and, or just under 1 in 20, and bringing them, sort of massaging their data, throwing out a few data points, doing their stats differently. And they get their p-values just down to the required amount, and then they publish that. And that's, that's a problem when it comes to clinical trials particularly. People actually die because of this practice. It's not extremely widespread, but it does go on a lot and, and it does cause problems. And so I think in the kind of era of big data that we're in now, it's kind of incumbent on us as, as teachers to train our students to do this properly and, and to not massage their data. So thank you. Thank you the opportunity to speak. Thank you, Rachel, for making my PowerPoint work, because <laughs> otherwise it would have been a very boring presentation. Um, my name's Hilary Howes. I'm a postdoctoral fellow in the School of Archaeology and Anthropology. Um, I did do my PhD at ANU. That was some years ago, and that was in um, Pacific history, so that was in College of Asia and Pacific. But um, essentially, I'm a historian of science, so I'm, I'm not an archaeologist, but I'm working as part of this big laureate fellowship uh, project the Collective Biography of Archaeology in the Pacific. Uh, it's headed up by Professor Matthew Spriggs in the School of Archaeology. Um, and just to give you an idea of the main, I mean, this, this, it's a big project. So uh, I'm one of two postdocs. There are um, four PhD students at the moment. There's a number of um, associate and visiting fellows. But um, Matthew, so my, the head of project, who, who is an archaeologist who specialises in Vanuatu particularly, um, believes that um, archaeologists, and particularly archaeologists of the Pacific, don't know enough about the history of their own discipline and that as a result of um, sort of forgetting that history, um, the discipline is, is really in a kind of crisis or a kind of stalemate. So a lot of the current theories about how um, the Pacific was populated and where, um, you know, where the migrations of different peoples came from and when uh, and how cultures developed. Uh, a lot of that is uh, based on very outdated and in some cases quite racialised ideas of um, social and cultural evolution. Uh, but, um, and, it's, and it's also a very Anglophone history. So um, you have really a surprising number of um, uh, German-speaking uh, scholars contributing to archaeology of the Pacific. You have a number of Francophone scholars, particularly in the um, French colonies. Um, you also have uh, uh, people like Russians and um, Norwegians and Danes and Swedes uh, buzzing around. Um, but um, these are these are some of the things that the project is aimed to is designed to address. So uh, having another look at these uh, at the current theories. Uh, in light of their historical development, um, uh, re paying, paying further attention to um, non-English language contributions, uh, particularly French and German, but I'm, I'm looking at the German language um, tradition in archaeology specifically, but uh, we also have PhD students, one of whom is looking at um, Norwegian and Swedish, uh, one is looking at um, Spanish language 
uh, work and um, uh, one of my colleagues is looking at Russian contributions. So we've got quite a, quite a broad spread. Uh, and we're also interested in uh, early archaeological excavations, so pre-Second uh, pre, pre World War, sorry. We're interested in women archaeologists and um, interested in uh, indigenous agency and indigenous participation in Pacific archaeology. So um, just to give you a little idea of the diversity of some of the people, I guess, that I'm looking at, I'm afraid it's going to be three old white men, but even within that category, it's... it's um, surprisingly diverse, the kinds of theories that they're coming up with, the way they were working, their attitudes towards indigenous cultures. Um, so, uh, you know, once I get on to finding some women archaeologists, I hope there will be some because I haven't really discovered anyone very promising yet. But, um, you know, I, I think there's still a lot of potential there. So, this is what I like to refer to as um, the classic racist. And uh, this is Rudolf Pusch. He uh, was born in Austria. He is uh, trained as a doctor, but um, he sort of ends up more in the field of physical anthropology. Um, and he undertakes a very early archaeological excavation in Collingwood Bay, which is, I don't have a map, I'm afraid, but it's on the um, north-east coast of New Guinea. Um, and um, that is one of the earliest excavations carried out in New Guinea. Um, but he's really, I mean, he's just, he's sort of passing through, it's part of a larger trip around uh, New Guinea, Bismarck Archipelago, Australia, uh, a number of other places uh, in the region. Um, and um, so he finds these potsherds and he finds uh, a carved cone shell, which you can see there in the middle at the top. And um, basically his explanation for these is that... Um, they can't possibly have anything to do with the current population because the current population is much too savage for that sort of thing. Um, so he talks about, you know, pottery shards yielding, a, displaying a much more advanced ceramic technique than anything in the region today, which um, involves a whole lot of assumptions about what is an advanced technique because, for example, um, a later study of pottery in that area showed that it's very highly valued within the, the wider region. It's very widely traded um, because the, particularly the, pot, the wall of the pots is very thin so it's very effective in cooking quickly without using um, ex an excessive amount of heat without taking a long time. So, I mean, he's kind of going on this assumption that, you know, they're uh, decorated in a way that is appealing to his European eyes, therefore they are more superior. Um, and then, uh, you know, he's surprised that there's, uh, he's finding what he thinks is a higher culture in New Guinea uh, and his assumption is that um, it's a matter of immigration by a more cultivated people from island groups further to the southeast. And when you then unpack that a bit, it's to do with um, more Polynesian-looking groups of people. And uh, the, I mean, he's sort of pointing the finger at the Trobrians because he, they have what he thinks is a more hierarchical society. That's an indicator for him of uh, a higher culture. Uh, they're lighter skinned. That is also an indicator that they're more evolutionarily advanced. So there's a lot of, I mean, it's, it's a fairly, it's a real kind of grab bag of assumptions. But, you know, I mean, that, that is one, one example of archaeologic, early archaeological thought. Then you have um, like what you could perhaps call cautious empiricists. So this is Otto Meyer. He's a Roman Catholic missionary, missionary of the Sacred Heart. He's uh, based in... Um, on Watam Island, but it's part of the Vicariate of Rabaul in New Guinea. He's there for over 30 years. 
Um, he's very active in publishing on a whole range of things, so not just archaeology, but um, he's very interested in ornithology, um, other branches of natural history. He's interested in ethno ethnology and linguistics. Uh, and he's important in the history of archaeology because he's the first person to describe what's now recognised as Lapita pottery. Although, of course, I mean, it wasn't called Lapita then, but um, that is the westernmost um, occurrence of this particular kind of pottery, which is spread, you know, all the way through as far as at least Vanuatu, I think, further. Um, and he is interesting because he's very, very cautious about making any assumptions about where this pottery might have come from. Um, so, you know, he finds it in 1909. Uh, and he's, his writings indicate that he's very interested in what local people have to say about it. I mean, he says at one point, well, they can't really explain where it came from. They, they talk about a... Um, a legendary hero who um, might have produced these objects, but he's also able to pick up um, local names for some of the markings on the pottery. So, oh, I'm going to have to, yeah, fine. Um, <laughs> um, so, in contrast to someone like Rudolf Pusch, who um, is just sort of drifting through, hasn't got the time or the inclination to learn any local languages, reliant on interpreters. Um, and has also conducted a whole lot of invasive anthropological measurements, so it's perhaps not surprising that people weren't too keen to talk to him about what they thought about the pottery. Um, Otto Meyer is able to find, to obtain quite a lot of information from local informants, and um, after 30 years of thinking about it, this, his very, very cautious conclusion is that perhaps there is some similarity with motifs of uh, pottery and other items from South America, um, and perhaps that indicates a kind of contact between the two cultures. So he, he doesn't say, um, you know, it came from the more civilised cultures of South America to these savage parts of New Britain, which is what you might expect. Uh, and he's talking about a similarity in design rather than um, a superiority of culture or a more developed form of civilization. So, I mean, this, this theory is not believed to be correct, but I think, I mean, the way that he has come to that conclusion is at least equally important. Uh, I was going to give you one more example, but I think I don't have time for that. So I'll leave it there. Thank you. Okay, so um, what I'm going to be looking at today, also, first of all, Will, thank you so much for inviting me, and I'm really thrilled to be here, and I'm really looking forward to meeting you all. And also, thank you very much to the three previous speakers. It's really interesting research, of which I'm afraid I don't intersect very obviously, but I'm sure we'll find exciting paths of intersection afterwards. But what... Yeah. <laughs> that's right. But what I am doing, in my, my, our research, and Susie Eggins is my co-researcher, is here, and we've been looking at communication in healthcare now for many years, and that intersects health sciences, medicine, nursing, allied health, and linguistics and communication. So in a sense, it's absolutely it, the theme of, of today, although um, not on evolution, I'm sorry. Okay, but just quickly as a bit, a bit of a background, I for many years have been looking at the role of spoken language at work and what's interesting is with the, well our contention is really the more and more of work is talk. So really to get in, an insight into what's happening in workplaces, you really need to say, okay, what's happening conversationally? What's happening in talk? So in other words, in the last sort of 10 years, 20 years, the restructuring at work has seen a proliferation of formal and informal um, talk being the most dominant form, much more dominant than the written, than, than, than writing. 
And what's interesting is the written that's most dominant now, emails, is much more similar to spoken language. So it's got all the features of informal spoken language. So in other words, people need to negotiate it continually, they collaborate, they do teamwork, etc. So there's a whole emphasis on spoken language. So I've been, and also um, I'd say I think that I shared this with the other linguists here as well, we are social linguists or social functional linguists. And what we argue is that talk in conversation, whether it be formal or informal, is there that people enact and confirm their social identities. So talk is not a reflection of your views and your positioning and your gender, but it actually constructs your gender positioning, your roles and identity at work. So in other words, for us to be able to get an insight into the workplaces that are working effectively to those that are not, we would argue that to go in and actually do a detailed analysis of the communication patterns is a way of actually seeing how those workplaces cohere, how uh, information gets transferred, it's not just the interpersonal. So the organisational context I'm going to look at today is the, con the context which we think is most probably one of the most vital for talk, which is hospital context. Anybody who's been in a hospital most probably would say and come away, especially in an emergency department, which I'm talking about today, and to say, we're very, very frustrated about lack of explanation about the processes, feeling that they hadn't been heard, feeling they'd been misunderstood. So, what that's, so that's what we're going to be looking at today. So that's been the other area of our research for the last 10 years, is communication in healthcare. Now, first of all, why communication matters in healthcare? Do you know, it's quite interesting that the figures are quite alarming. 500,000 Australians a year get basically get harmed by the hospitals they go to for help. It's a fairly alarming statistic. And about, they, they, estimates are not conservative ones, say at least 70% is to do with communication breakdown in one form or the other. So the other thing is, that, so that's the quality of the experience, the safety. The other thing is the cost. Poor communication basically motivates the second highest number of patient complaints across Australia, not just New South Wales, well that figure's there. For example, if a doctor, I'll just use a doctor as an example, if a doctor is deemed to be medically, have made, made a fault, but interpersonally competent, they never get complained about. It's only the doctor who is deemed to be, have been very interpersonally offensive or inadequate or whatever, and has made a mistake, that they get complained about. So it shows the power of the interpersonal. The cost to Australia is about two billion a year, of which they, say they estimate 600 million is for miscommunication. Peter Garling, he did an analysis of what's going on in New South Wales hospitals. He made this pretty extraordinary quote. He says, the quality of patient-clinician communication is unacceptable in a civilised society, let alone a system of patient-centred care. So what, what then we're saying is, okay, why is it not getting better? In fact, it's getting worse. The number of patients who are suffering from avoidable critical incidents are increasing around the world. Hospital care, in terms of the quality and safety, is not getting any better in terms of communication issues. Okay, so we did three, we've done I'm just, three large grants. They've been sequential in the last three years. The one I'm looking at today is communication in emergency departments. The reason why is emergency departments are predominantly a spoken discourse. They, there is virtually no relationship between what is spoken to the patient and what's written down or with what is spoken about the patient in the handover and what is written down. The spoken, and it is in the spoken that is critical for whether a patient conforms to the diagnosis, agrees to the diagnosis, feels like they've been an active participant in their care. 
Okay, our research is, as I say, on the intersection of the two disciplines. That's why um, um, I think you know, it's very exciting at ANU because you have a medical faculty here and already we're putting in a project. A few of us from linguistics are putting in a cross-disciplinary project with a few from the Faculty of Medicine. We're putting that into the Inaction MRC. But just quickly, um, and I don't think I can speak more quickly, but I'll, <laughs> I'll try to calm down a bit. The, that the, we have, um, what we do is where it's a little bit different. It's, it's qualitative, but Rob, I really like what you were saying in terms of the prejudices within disciplines. Medicine is dominated by clinical trials and quantitative research. For us to have our research really considered, it's getting better, but you have to have mixed methods. If it's just purely qualitative, it's an uphill battle. That, but interestingly, it's just changing. Although I worry about our NH and MRCs, we keep popping in a survey, so it looks a little bit like there's numbers there. But we are predominantly qualitative. What we do is we observe, we interview, we shadow clear clinicians. It's still large scale. So it doesn't have to be small numbers, it's very large scale, but, it's, but we also do quantitative surveys across Australia. The thing that's unique, we believe, is that we triangulate the results from that with the audio and video recording of actual interactions. In other words, what people think they say is very different than what they say. So interviews alone, which is a dominant form of methodology in the health communication research, we don't believe um, is... Well, sorry, it's very interesting, but it doesn't shed light into what, what is the evidence of what's going wrong? Where are the misunderstandings? Where is the case where the patient really didn't understand the diagnosis and then didn't comply with the treatment? We're translational research. We, um, we, what we do is we do many extensive, many, many months of data collection, but we then translate it into practical communication protocols and training for doctors. So we're training... Suzanne Eggins and I have trained 350 nurses in Canberra Hospital based on the research, etc. Okay, what I'm going to do now is very, in the last few moments, is give you an example of the kind of work that we do. And what this is, is, okay, so what we do is we say, um, here's the context. What, what, through the interviews and through the observation, how, we how do we describe the context? Because that's an essential prerequisite for looking at how that at, at manifested in language. So without going into detail, the description of the ED is it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, so you can't predict. It's the least predictable medical context. It's, there's increasing linguistic and cultural diversity, and there's a, tra there's a training ground for junior doctors and junior nurses. So there's constant movement between people with more or less expertise. They're also, so, so EDs are cross-disciplinary, cross-level, cross-cultural. There's also competing discourses. The doctors have one agenda, which is to reach an efficient diagnosis. The patients have a different one, which is for their anxiety to be relieved and to feel like they've been treated with enough time for them to understand what's going on. And then there's a hospital in, in one which is getting patients through the system as quickly as possible. Now, what, so what we say is, in, as, as social linguists, we say, what's the relationship between this context and what's going on linguistically? The relationship is, in terms of the contextual complexity I just outlined, it, it, pa patients can see between six and 12 different clinicians in the ED. What's the, what, what happens with that? There's enormous risk to information transfer because every time they see one doctor, in, that, in those 12 hand, handovers or transfers, there's a chance of miscommunication. There's insufficient explanations given. There's very different patterns of talk for junior and senior. I'm just going to give you an example of one patient. 
that this patient had 12, saw 12 different, um, 12 different health professionals in the interaction. His name, we've named Denton. It's all de-identified. If you have a look at the next one, there were 225 different interactions that, di that different people came in and had with Denton during that time. So the first one is the ambulance officer. The green one is triage nurse. But you'd not till here that Denton says anything. So it's about an hour and 20 minutes after he's there does he utter his first question. And then his, and his question was, who is my doctor? Who is my specialist? So you can see, and he was 87, non-English speaking background. The confusion was enormous. Okay, just to finish off, but what we do is we then say, okay, how do you relate these contextual characteristics and the complexity with what actually has happened in the recordings? So we, do, we go back and we relate it to, okay, but one feature was insufficient, so, if you, so you have here, one feature was risk and knowledge transfer. So that was that first example. But due to time, I'm going to give you an example which is a very, which was, um, um, this was uh, not Denton, it's an older patient, he was about 92 I think, non-English speaking. And this is what you would call um, um, ins really um, insufficient explanation for what was going on. I give you good news or bad news, patient, all right, which one? Bad one first, the doctor. Bad one first? Okay, we did a scan and we found some clots, multiple, several clots in the chest. Right, that's the bad news. The good news, we found out why you have clots. It's not from the heart, the heart's going to fail. And the doctor said, have to go now and raise staff. So <laughs> the, the researcher was actually, my, my colleague, the researcher was actually with that patient and he was absolutely, but nobody came at all and told him what he had to do about it, what thing. He just sat there and a little bit, bit, bit later, a junior doctor said, you can go now. And they gave some explanation, but very, very inadequate about what he had to do in terms of seeing his GP. Now, this is, we, it's really important to stress, we aren't critical of the health profession at all. We work, re, every team has doctors, senior, senior medical, senior allied health, senior nursing, and senior linguists. Because unless you have that insider and outsider perspective, I wouldn't have even known what a, the other one, sorry, I wouldn't have even known what a CO2, what a CO2 retainer is. So it's working together with that outsider and insider has proven to be really, really fruitful. So um, without going through it, what we do is we develop communication protocols for each of them and training. And this is the, so one for, um, protocols for relaying the medical information and those for relaying both the, and, and the interpersonal, the interactional. Okay, I'll finish there, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.